0: Why don't you guys read along with me? Chapter 12, starting in verse 1. The Word of God says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to a land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I just uh, thank you for this morning. I thank you for your word and how amazing it is, Lord. As we go through it this morning, God, I pray that we see maybe some connections that we've never seen before. And with that, more than anything, that we're just in awe of you, your wisdom, your knowledge, your creativity, Lord, and your plan. God, help this be a a time of worship. And also help us be encouraged, Lord, that uh, our faith in you is a a good place to have it. It is a trustworthy place, Lord. Trusting you is is the only way, Lord. And I pray that as Abraham trusts you, uh, we trust you. And so I pray that you're with us right now as we go over this passage. Amen. Last week, uh, Pastor Brent introduced us to a philosophical term called metanarrative. It's a fancy term, and don't let fancy terms scare you off. Metanarrative, all it means is large story or or overarching story. So if you say something like, what is the metanarrative of the scriptures, you're saying, what's the large story of the scriptures? What's the overarching story that all stories fit into? One of the reasons we're using this term and we're going over the meta narrative of the Bible this summer is because we live in a postmodern society, and I've been uh, studying postmodernism for a while now. I'm not an expert by any means, but but from what I've studied, if I had one characteristic of a postmodern society, the society we live in right now, I would say it's it's the denial of a meta narrative. The denial of an overarching story that each one of our individual stories fit into. Instead, we emphasize individual stories. And this becomes an influence in how we read the scriptures. We tend to read the scriptures and ask, how does this portion of scripture fit into my story? And I claim you shouldn't read the Bible and ask how it fits into your story. You should read the Bible and ask how your story fits into God's story. How your life fits into God's story or God's meta narrative, Not how God fits into my life. Today we're going to go over the call of Abraham. But I really want to review Genesis 1 through 11 because we need to get some perspective of where this call comes from and what's going on with Abraham. And if we're going to go over the meta narrative scriptures, we should start from the beginning. Genesis 1 through 11 is really a wide-angle view of mankind, and it goes through uh, generations very quickly, okay? Genesis 12 through 50, through the rest of the book of Genesis, really slows down, and it's focused on one man's family, Abraham, then Isaac, then Jacob, and his 12 sons. And the Bible does this a lot. It'll, It'll go through time periods very rapidly. Then it will focus in on, on one group of people, like First and Second Samuel, just talking about David pretty much. And then you get the Kings, and it starts going real fast again. And that's consistent through the Bible. So we have Genesis 1 through 11 goes real fast, and we slow down at Genesis 12. And Brent preached last week that on the road to Emmaus, Jesus said this about all the scriptures. He said the whole Bible is about him. And he said, if you understood the Bible, you would see that. And he sat there and explained to the two disciples that he was with that it pointed to his suffering and death and his resurrection, that the Bible points to Jesus. So let's go through um, Genesis 1 through 11. This is what I want you to do with me as we do this. Uh, Just open to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to go through chapters pretty quickly. um, And just follow along with me right now. We're going to be jumping around a lot this morning. So... um, I'll try to do the best I can to direct you as we go. But starting in chapter 1, this is just the creation story. right? In day 1, uh, God spoke the heavens and the earth into existence. He spoke light into existence. In day 2, the expanse in heaven. Day 3, earth and vegetation. Day 4, the sun, the moon, and stars. And it's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. is uh, uh, Chapter 1, verse 16. You can see the high schoolers. They know this one. It says this in verse 16, And God made the two great lights, the greater lights to rule the day, that's the sun, and the lesser night to rule the night, which is the moon, and the stars. And the stars. The most massive, glorious, awesome things in the universe, and it gets, and the stars. (laughs) It's almost like God said, I'm going to put these out here just so you know how big I am. Day five, swarms and swarms of living creatures, birds and sea creatures. Day six, land animals. And lastly, man. And when it talks about the creation of man, it it makes it sound like God came down and formed man. He came down and made man out of dust. And just a side note, what man is made of is not what is awesome about man. You with me on this? What man is made of is not what's awesome about man. We were made of proteins and acids and and mostly water. I was looking this up. If you just had the chemicals that make up your body, not put in any order, it's worth, people argue, between $1 and $160. But if you put them in the right order, you put those proteins in the right order and make a DNA strand, it's amazing. If you put the right proteins in order and make an eyeball... It's amazing. So how God took the dust and made man is amazing. And therefore, the psalmist worships God, saying, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. But more than that, God put a soul in man and made man in his image and then gave man dominion over the earth. Because he was in his image, he gave rulership over the earth, dominion, and said, fill it and subdue it have dominion so God made man well God made man last God gave man everything and he told man just don't eat from this one tree then day seven he rested and enjoyed his creation then we go to chapters three and four and this is the fall of man we know this story well the serpent comes tempts uh, man Man's sins, and we see four effects on mankind from the sin. Guilt and shame, and not the feeling of guilt, but true guiltiness. Man was guilty, and it says in chapter 3, they knew they were naked. Man's effort through works to try to cover their, their guilt and shame, their nakedness. They tried to sew fig leaves together and cover their nakedness. Separation from God. Man, before the fall, walked with God. After the fall, man hid himself from God. Spiritually dead, separated from God. And lastly, a refusal to take responsibility unrepented. God came and says, where are you? What happened? And of course, God knew where man was and what happened. He was giving man an opportunity to say, I messed up. Forgive me. Have mercy on me. But instead, man says, the woman who you gave to be with me, it's her fault. He blame shifts. And really what he's saying is, God, it's it's your fault. The woman who you gave to me. Man not not only rebelled against God, but then blames God for his rebellion. And this is why sin is so ugly. If you think about it, man only ate a piece of fruit that's not the ugliness of sin it's the rebellion that's ugly and therefore why even small sins are so ugly it's a rebellion against god there is no small sin it's all rebellion and it's ugly therefore god gives curses he curses the snake he curses satan he gives a curse that affects women, and he gives a curse that affects men. But something that I didn't see, I was talking to Pastor Brent, and, and Pastor Brent said, hey, do you realize they don't? God does not directly curse man and woman? And I never saw that. He curses man's ability to subdue the earth, and he curses women's ability to fill the earth. He brings curses on them having dominion, but he doesn't directly curse man and woman. And I asked Brent why, and he says, well, he loves man. He loves man, but he does curse Satan, and Satan's curse is a promise to us. Look at Genesis 3.15, right? I'm reading from the uh, ESV, and this is what it says in Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his hill. Now, there is a lot here. We could spend a whole Sunday on just this uh, one verse here. But I have the 12, and i got a lot to cover. The offspring in Hebrew, and a lot of your your, uh, translations probably has this, is not offspring. It's seed, literally seed. So I like the NASB. I like how they translate it better. In verse uh, 315, it says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. Now, if you think about this, what's wrong? Who has the seed? Man or woman? There's only one man in the history of mankind that was born without a seed of man. I believe this seed is pointing to Christ. And it says this, and I actually like the NIV and how they translate it. In the second part of verse 15, he, the seed that's coming, the seed from women, he will crush your head. And you, Satan, and your seed will strike his heel. My question, because see, Satan here is a venomous snake, what happens when a venomous snake strikes your heel? You die. For Satan's head to be crushed The seed must suffer and die. This is the first glimpse of the gospel, right, in Genesis 3. Jesus said that the whole scriptures point to him, and it starts right after the fall. Hope. Hope that the Satan's head would be crushed. A seed is coming that will destroy the enemy. There's a hope in a coming seed, and I honestly think this is how Eve was saved. She had faith in God that he would redeem her through a coming seed. And this seed becomes the focus of Genesis. And not only Genesis, but it becomes the focus of the entire Bible. It is the meta-narrative. It is the overarching story. The whole Old Testament points forward to the seed, and the whole New Testament points back to what the seed did. Jesus is the meta-narrative, and that's why our mission. Uh, statement is it's all about jesus let me give you an example look at genesis 4 1 now adam knew eve his wife and she conceived and bore cain saying i have gotten a man with the help of the lord now, there's a lot going on in the Hebrew in this passage, and I don't want to, in the part of, I have gotten it, man, with the help of the Lord, and I don't want to look too much into it, but you see excitement. Eve was thinking, this must be the seed. This must be the seed that's coming. The seed that will take away my guilt and shame that will crush Satan's head. But what she gets is disappointment. Cain is not the promised seed. He's the seed of Satan. A lot of people think the passage that says he was a murderer from the beginning is pointing back to this. The seed of Satan kills his younger brother, Abel. Yet, through this disappointment comes hope. Look at verse 25. Genesis 4, 25. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. Another offspring. Offspring, what's that word? Another seed. Cain is the seed of Satan who killed Abel. Therefore, the thirdborn, Seth, gets the seed, passed down the hope that a seed is still coming. And then we go to Genesis 5. We get a genealogy. And I grew up my whole entire life in the church wondering why there's these long genealogies in the scripture. And I was told my whole life, you need to read them and get something out of them. And I had no idea what was going on until I started looking at the meta narrative of scripture. The genealogy is the hope of the seed, that a seed's coming. Seth has a son he has a son he has a son and so on the seed is coming it's hope of a seed that's coming this is why it's so profound that Matthew starts with the genealogy he's making a claim that the seed has come and this the seed gets passed down to Noah chapter 6 through 9 which is the flood story that we know very well mankind at this point a few generations after Adam and Eve is so evil I actually like the New Living Translation and how it says this in Genesis 6-5. The Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on the earth, and he saw that everything they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. Man was so evil that God said, I'm taking them out. But he saves one man, Noah and his family. And my question is, why save Noah? Well, if he didn't, we wouldn't be around, so that's one answer. But the seed. The seed never would have been born. And God's promise would have never been realized. So God saves Noah. Then we get to chapter 10 and we learn about the families that come from Noah's sons, which become all the nations of the world, because in chapter 11, we get the Tower of Babel. Man again rebels against God. This is the fourth time in in 11 chapters that man rebels against God that we see. Man, um, at this point, was called to spread out through the entire earth, but instead, rebelling against God, they came together and tried to create one nation. Then they tried to build a building to reach the heavens, to reach God. Not to glorify God or anything by those means, but to make man's name great, it says. So God came down, which says that God came down. I love that because it says that God had to come down to see what was happening. God saw what was happening, but the word is worded that way to show how much higher God is in this man, these men. God came down and confused man's language and then spread man throughout the earth. And you get, at this point, a hopeless feeling. Because of man's rebellion, there's a hopeless feeling again. Just like after the sin in the garden, just like after the murder of Abel, just like after the mass wickedness of man before the flood. Yet you look at the second half of Genesis 11, verse 10. These are the generations of Shem. Another genealogy. There's hope. The seed is still coming. And we follow Shim's family now to Abram. So Genesis 1 through 11 is this wide-angle lens of mankind. We go through generations very quickly, but we're following the seed through the whole 1 through 11. We go from Abraham, or, um, Adam all the way through to Abraham. And then we get to chapter 12, and we focus in and slow down. From one man, this family, we're going to follow for the rest of the book of Genesis. Abraham, his son Jacob, his son Isaac, and his 12 boys that become the 12 tribes of Israel who, through them and their kids and their kids and their kids, become the nation of Israel. From this family, we get the nation of Israel. And from one family's generation, we follow for the rest of uh, Genesis. And, and in Genesis 12, we learn a few things. We learn a few things specifically about the seed. Look at Genesis 12:1 again. Now the Lord said to Abram, "Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to a land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing." I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed so we learn a few things the seed will become a great nation and the seed will come from this nation this nation will live in a promised land and this nation will be a blessing and so we're going to go over today the call of Abram the birth of the nation of Israel. Okay. And there's three points that I want to go over for, with the call. Uh, the election of Abraham, the faith by Abraham, and the promises for Abraham. You start with the election of Abraham. Genesis 12:1 says this, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go. Abraham is God's elect. Now, I know this word, election, is a very controversial subject. Um, and as I was preparing, I was going to use a different word because I didn't want to bring up controversy or have people uh, not listen to the sermon because I use this word. And as I was thinking about it, though, I said, well, this word's a biblical word. Why use this word? Because it's found in scriptures writers inspired by God use this word for a reason election and i think genesis 12 is a clear example of it let me just give you some examples in the new testament this word being used matthew 24:22 says this but for the sake of the elect luke 18:7 and will not god give justice to his elect romans 8:33 who shall bring any charges against God's elect? Second Timothy two ten. For the sake of the elect. Titus one one, for the sake of the faith of the God's elect. Second Peter one ten. Confirm your calling and election. First Peter, and this is my favorite one. First Peter one, one, to those who are elect exiles. Elect exiles. We're going to come back to that verse later on. But I hear people say all the time, I don't believe in the doctrine of election or even very hostile to that word. And I just want to say that's a biblical word. And it's a biblical concept. But let me be clear. We may disagree on what that word means. But we shouldn't dismiss it as unbiblical, unimportant, or even worse, somehow evil. Lots of your Bibles in those verses that I was uh, going through translate those words elect um, to chosen instead of elect. That's because the Greek word uh, um, electos means chosen. So it's appropriate to translate it chosen. Election means to to choose, and elect means chosen. And if elect means chosen, then this is not a New Testament concept. This is deeply rooted in the Old Testament. We all know Israel as God's chosen people. The idea of being God's elect or chosen is deeply rooted in the Old Testament. in particularly, Israel being God's chosen people. So let me show you. Deuteronomy 7, 6. Don't turn there, just listen. It says this. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Psalms 105 says, O offspring of Abraham, his servant, children of Jacob, his chosen ones. Isaiah 44, 1 says, But now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. Ezekiel uh, 25 says, And say to them, Thus says the Lord God, um, on the day when I chose Israel. And these are just a few passages. I started looking through the Old Testament, and I counted 20, and I stopped Um Clearly, Israel is God's chosen people, God's elect. But why Israel? Why this nation? Well, God answers that. In Deuteronomy 7, 6, he says this, just listen. For you, talking to Israel, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Out of all the people groups, God has chosen Israel. Well, why? Well, verse 7 says this, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you are the fewest of all people. Hey, it's not Israel because you're so desirable. Other places in Deuteronomy says, Don't think it's because you're righteous. You're a stiff-necked people. God is making it clear to the Israelites throughout Deuteronomy that there is nothing within the nation itself that God chose them. But, verse 8 says this, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. Two things he says, because of my love for you, Israel, that I love you. And two, God's oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So, a better question may be why Abraham? Well, what do we know about Abram? Well, we know this he comes from a pagan country and family. Uh, Joshua 24 2 says this um, And Joshua said to all the people, this is Israel, to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates. Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, um, and they served other gods. One commentator uh, was talking about the Ur of the Chaldeans, where uh, Abraham was from, and said this, We trust the Bible as the inerrant word of God, and we stand on it soundly as our authority in all things. But it is exciting when God allows us to confirm biblical accounts with present-day discoveries, as he has done for us in this account. You see, the ancient city of Ur, Abraham's birthplace, um, as mentioned in Genesis 11, was rediscovered and excavated between 1922 and 1934, providing much more information about the city and life during the time of Abram. The people of Ur had adopted Nanasin, the moon god, as their patron. A ziggurat was erected uh, as a temple to Nanasin, uh, perhaps harkening back only a few generations to the Tower of Babel, when God judged the people for their disobedience and idolatry by confusing their language, Ur was a thoroughly pagan city, where the religious leaders and rulers used their idolatry to control the population. Royalty, royal barrier uh, burials, pit. Um, or pit were dis- or sorry royal barrier barrier pits were discovered that included masters and their servants given the appearance that once the royalty died servants willingly or unwillingly committed mass suicide in one case as many as 68 servants were found buried with their master After realizing the pagan, godless nature of the people of Ur, we are not surprised that God would call Abram to move from the city and journey to a new location where he would continue um, the fulfillment of his plan of redemption for all who would believe. Here's the point. Abraham and his family were pagans. The Bible gives us absolutely no reason why Abraham was chosen by God. There's no because Besides two things. One, God's grace. God said, I'm going to pour out my love and grace on this man and his family. And two, God's purpose. Genesis, two, three, or three, or Genesis 12, 2-3 says, And I will make of you a great nation. And later on, he says, In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. I'm going to create a nation. I'm going to give this nation a land and bless all the families of the earth through this nation. That's why... I choose you, Abraham. So that's the election of Abraham. I want to look at the faith of Abraham next. Verse four, chapter twelve. So he, Abraham, went. God said, "Go," and he went. Side note: Just so you guys know, next week, uh, Pastor Brent's going to talk about this faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. But today I want to explore more the idea of faith. Why was this faith so extreme? Well, Abraham had some things going against him. Uh, he was, this promise that God did, has given him hinged on him having a child. To have a land, to be a blessing, there had to be a nation, and the nation was going to come from his offspring. The problems are his wife was barren. It says in Genesis eleven thirty. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. And Abraham was 75 years old at this point. Also, he was called to leave home and travel. Traveling was extremely dangerous. It's not like it is today. Robbers would wait for travelers to come by and rob them and kill them because it was easy to do it. They had to find food and preserve food. There was no, this sounds silly, but when you think about it, there's no fast food or grocery stores. And there's hostile, evil nations all over the place. He was also called to leave home. And when leaving home uh, in a patriarchal society was a big deal, fathers would build up land, wealth, and honor to bat- pass down to their sons. Abraham was going to leave um, or live the rest of his life, if he stayed in Ur, in wealth, comfort, and prestige. He had a good retirement plan set up for him. And God said, leave it. Go, to, uh, go from your country, and he says, to the land that I will show you. He doesn't even know where this land is. He just says, um, it's just a land he couldn't see. And verse 4 says, so Abraham went. I mean, that's huge faith. But what is faith? What is faith? And I've talked about this before, even here in the, in the pulpit, but it needs to be mentioned because today's church has been influenced heavily by mysticism. Uh, faith has become, in a lot of churches around our nation, a mystic- mystical power. If you have enough of this mystical power, you can do anything. It's almost as if you just concentrate hard enough, you can, you can do whatever you want. But Hebrew 11 tells us what faith is. And the the thing about it, it's, it's simple. Look, don't, just listen. Hebrews 11, verse 1. You guys can look at this later. Hebrews 11, verse 1 says this. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Right? Abraham couldn't see the promised land. But he hoped for it, and he had a conviction about it. Where does that conviction come from? God's word. Purely God's word. He had faith that God would keep his word. Because God told him. If you skip down to 11, just listen to this, or verse 6, sorry, chapter 11, verse 6, it says this, And without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those that seek him. Faith is two things. God exists. I believe there's a God. And he rewards those who seek him. This is what Abraham must have been saying. God, I can't see what you are promising, but I have faith that it's better than what this world has to offer. I have no child. I don't see the land. But I have faith that what you are asking me is best. That there's great rewards at the end of it. And here's the point that we need to get across to, to the world, to, to our communities. God is not a cosmic killjoy. Look what he did here. He promised Abraham great reward, a, a great nation, a promised land, a great name and blessings. Stay home, he says, and live a life you can see. Have your father's inheritance. Live in a land that you know well. Or follow me and trust that there is a better reward. And verse 4 says, So Abraham went. Let me just keep reading. Chapter 12, verse 4. So Abraham went, and, the, and um, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan, When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land at the place um, place of Shechem uh, to the oak of Moreh. Um, At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offsprings I give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the uh, west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negeb. Two things popped out at me when I first read that. One, at that time the Canaanites were in the land. And two, Abraham pitched his tent. Abraham is in the promised land, yet he's an alien. The Canaanites lived there, and he's living in a tent. He's chosen, but he's an alien. He has God's favor, but he's a drifter. It's his land, but he's a sojourner. He's an elect exile. You know, 1 Peter says, we are the same thing. Elect exiles. Exiles. Abraham never saw the full promise of God within his lifetime. You might say, "I thought you said God uh, rewards those that seek Him." Yes, but God determines the reward, and faith also says, "Gods, I know that your reward is best, not what I think the reward should be." Hebrews eleven eight. Don't just listen to this. Says this talking about Abraham. By faith Abram, Arab Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was um, to receive as an inheritance. and he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents, with Isaac and Jacob heirs of him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that um, has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. They're living in tents, but they have hope and faith, looking forward to a reward. If you skip down to verse 16 and just listen, yep, verse 16 says this, they all died in faith, not having received the Thane's promise, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, And having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, Abraham, it says, "seen them and greeted them from afar," meaning Abraham had a taste of the promises in his life. He tasted them, but never fully experienced the word until the next life. He was an elect exile. He was chosen by God, but lived as an alien in the land of promise. And he died like that. But listen to verse 16. But as it is, they, and this is as they, is Abraham, desired a better country, that is, a heavenly one. See, Abraham, through it all, knew his real reward was not found in this life. It was a heavenly hope. God was Abraham's reward. It was Abraham's hope. A future heavenly city great blessings and joy because God was there. You know what? Just like Abraham, we're chosen sojourners. We're living on this earth, but it's not our home. Our hope is in the next life, a life we can't see that we have to have faith in. Right? And you know what? Abraham had a choice. R- R- Genesis 12 stay home, indulge in paganism and worldly pleasures, or follow God, having faith that he had something better. This is uh, what I want you guys to think about every time the temptation of sin comes. Because every time we sin, we're saying, I don't trust you, God. I don't trust you. This sin is better than what you have to offer. This sin is better than you. Faith says, I know this sin will bring pleasure. And I don't want to deny that. Faith sees the pleasure that sin will bring. But God, I have faith that you have something better for me. This is why the righteous live by faith. Trusting that obedience will ultimately lead to a greater joy. So the election of Abraham, the faith by Abraham... And lastly, the promise for Abraham. Verse 1, chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, "'Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse.'" And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Why choose Abraham and promise him a nation, a land, and great name? Well, we answered that. Two reasons. God's grace being number one. And number two, God's purpose. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Israel's purpose is to blessed, or become a blessing. Of all the families, they're to be a light to the nations, and this is a big part of God's meta narrative. God's uh, a big story. There's a priority in blessing the nations from the get go, right? I mean, chapter 11 of, of Genesis: man rebels, and nations were made because of the rebellion, spread throughout the earth, and then right in the next chapter, chapter 12, God's grace comes to bless one man, to make a great nation out of him, and to have that nation be a light to all nations. Missions is not a New Testament invention. God's mission to the nations started the chapter after the nations were created. When we started today, I said, you should read the Bible and ask how your story fits into God's story. Here's my question. How are you reaching the nations? This is part of God's meta-narrative. And I, I don't want to be hard on our church. And We have some missionaries that are reaching the nations, and we support them well. Um, but man, we could do better. Uh, we need to be praying for our missionaries. Uh, we can encourage our missionaries. Just read their emails if they send them to you. Read their emails and maybe reply to them. Just say hey, we're thinking about you. It's huge encouragement. I mean, these these missionaries are alone, taking uh, the message to the ends of the earth, filling or fulfilling and doing what God's called them to do in their meta, the meta narrative of of God's story. Right. Part of the meta narrative of the Bible is that the God's elect will be blessings to the nations. This is ultimately fulfilled in the seed that's coming, right? I mean, the ultimate fulfilling of Israel being a blessing to the nation is that Christ came out of Israel. Christ is the ultimate blessing. And we are called to share this blessing with the nations. So we're going to continue going through the Old Testament and looking at the meta-narrative of Scripture, and I hope you guys see Christ on every sermon that we go, every turn that we take. It's pointing to Christ. And that's our mission, taking that message to the ends of the earth. Let me pray. Dearly Father, Lord, I just thank you. I thank you for hope, Lord. I thank you for sending the seed, God, I thank you for making a way to cover our guilt and shame. Making a way to taking our guilt and shame away from us, Lord, and giving us righteousness, not because we deserve it, not because we are special, but because your son lived a perfect life and died on the cross for us. He crushed Satan's head through his death. God, help us just to worship that help us to make that a priority in our life help us to make our life about your story about you being worship about your meta-narrative and not think that we are our own gods in our life that you fit into somehow god help us repent from that if that's our attitude and help us bow our knees to you the one and true god the only one that can make sense of our lives, the only one that that has brought forgiveness and grace to us. Lord, I pray that uh, you are with us, Lord, as we leave from here and that you challenge us. How can we reach the nations? How can we worship you, Lord? How can we read your scripture in, in, in the correct light, Lord, and know exactly what you're trying to tell us, Lord? God, how can we grow? Be with us right now. Amen.